0: Welcome to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and 90.7 FM KRDP. Later in the show, Monique Nakai will tell us about Res Refuge, a community center located in Fort Defiance, Arizona. We'll talk with Connor Chi, Navajo pianist and composer, and we'll learn about Sweeter Mox with Sean Xavier. But right now, host Lanasha Pawati talks with Desiree Jones about the University of Arizona Cancer Center Office of Community Outreach and Engagement.
1: Desiree Jones is a community health educator with the University of Arizona Cancer Center in the Office of Community Outreach and Engagement. Welcome to our show, Desiree. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah. So, Hi, everyone. My name is Desiree Jones. I just introduced myself in Navajo, um, I am from the Navajo tribe, and my clans are the Black Sheetwood people, and I am born for the Water Edge. My maternal grandfathers are the Cliff Dwellers, and my paternal grandfathers are the Tangle Clans. And I work at the University of Arizona Cancer Center with their Office of Community Outreach and Engagement, and I'm one of their community health educators. And I do work with uh, delivering cancer education and awareness in communities in Arizona. And really, it's just identifying cancer resources to individuals and communities that need it. And our outreach efforts are primarily focused on bridging, bridging or connecting the University of Arizona Cancer Center to the communities in Arizona.
1: Oh, wow. That's great. And it's a pleasure to have you today, Desiree. Can you tell us um, what is the University of Arizona Cancer Center?
2: Yeah, certainly. So the University of Arizona Cancer Center is one of 71 National Cancer Institute designated cancer centers, and one of 51 comprehensive cancer centers in the nation. And right now, it's the only comprehensive cancer center headquartered in and serving the entire state of Arizona. And really, when you talk about a comprehensive cancer center, it really just means that the, co- the cancer center demonstrates reasonable depth and breadth of research in three major areas, which is laboratory research, clinical research, and prevention, control, and population-based research.
1: Do Native Americans experience a higher rate of any of these cancers? So it really
2: depends on where the data is obtained. So the Cancer Center utilizes a number of different data sources to collect information about data. So right now, what what we've seen is that... um, According to the data that we've collected, Native Americans in Arizona have a high can- uh, incident rate, meaning new cases of cancer in liver, kidney, myeloma, and uterine cancers. And then there's also cancer mortality, meaning cancer deaths. So among Native Americans in Arizona, the highest cancer mortality is in liver, kidney, and stomach cancers.
1: And... A part of your community outreach, do you guys also offer information regarding preventative initiatives?
2: Yes, we actually, one of our big initiatives is colorectal cancer. So if people are familiar with the Cancer Center or who who have come to some of our events or seen us out in the community, you may recognize us with our giant inflatable colon. So we use that as one of our tools to encourage individuals to go and get screened for colorectal cancer. And so we do have different types of programming around colorectal cancer, as well as we do partner with um, some of our breast and cervical cancer programs and just encouraging individuals overall to get screened for cancers that are screenable.
1: I understand that you also have an upcoming conference. Can you tell us more about this conference and who is it geared towards?
2: The Office of Outre- Community Outreach and Engagement really is aimed along the whole cancer continuum from prevention all the way to survivorship so right now we are in in the planning phase of our beyond cancer event so this is our first in-person beyond cancer event and it's geared toward cancer survivors caregivers co-survivors family friends and community members it's a one-day event where we are providing different workshops resources and the opportunity for cancer survivors to network with other individuals. Um, This event is going to take place June 11th of 2022 from 8 a.m. to 3.15 at the Desert Willow Conference Center in Phoenix, Arizona. Some of the topics that we'll be covering are self-advocacy, caregiving, patient navigation, how to avoid financial toxicity with cancer care, um, mental health and positive psychology, as well as having some interactive activities um, in regards to physical activity, um, one of our keynotes is uh, traditional healing and cancer care. So those are some of the topics that we'll be covering at our event.
1: You mentioned traditional healing. Can you tell us about how you are incorporating traditional healing?
2: Yes, certainly. So, um, for many indigenous communities, traditional healing may play an important role in health and well-being. And so, our goal was to touch on that um, from the perspective of cancer survivorship, because we do target the Native American communities throughout the state. And so, we really wanted to be inclusive about their needs and their and some of the encou- some of their experiences they may encounter with cancer care. So, one of In our traditional healing panel, we do have cancer survivors who incorporated traditional healing in their cancer care. We are planning on having traditional healers on the panel as well and providers who have done work um, integrating both traditional healing and cancer treatment and just overall sharing their experience, how individuals who want to incorporate traditional healing, how do they have those conversations with their provider? It really is just an, a, a process or a discussion to have with other ca- uh, cancer survivors about whether or not they want to incorporate traditional healing and what does that look like
1: and how to have those conversations with the their oncology team. Is there a fee to your conference and is this an annual conference? Is this something you guys are planning on doing again next year? This
2: conference is completely free. We plan on having it every year. Um, due to COVID, we did have a, like, small virtual mini, um, like, virtual webinars, so our, we had mini webinars where we covered um, self-advocacy, then we had another another webinar where we had um, mental health, and then another webinar that covered uh, nutrition and physical activity, and so this Big event is really a combination of all those mini webinars and adding more components into it, along with we will be having resource tables available at our event for individuals who would like more resources. And yeah, we certainly want to have this event every year. The location may change, but this is something that we're looking forward to having annually.
1: And do you offer any other, um, any other events or classes? Um, the best way to know what, what other events that we're planning on having is following us on our social media.
2: So Instagram and Twitter, our handle is at underscore C-O-E, and our Facebook page is Arizona Cancer Center. So we advertise a lot of our outreach activities on those social media websites. In, I believe in June, we're having a, what we call a scientific cancer discussion uh, Scientific Cancer Series, where we are bringing in our director, Dr. Joanne Sweezy, and she'll be at one of our local restaurants in Tucson, and she'll be talking with the community about what the Cancer Center does and just having a dialogue with the community about um, how the Cancer Center can, or how the Cancer Center is approaching the needs of the community.
1: And are these programs, or these classes uh, free as well?
2: Yes, a lot of our programming is free. As far as I've been here, there, there hasn't been any payment or registration fee for anything. A lot of our programming is free and open, avail- and open and available to the public. So really we just require individuals to register for our events. And again, all that information is usually on our social media websites about how to register, where to register and uh, the dates and times that the events are, are occurring.
1: And how can someone contact you if they have further questions?
2: Yeah, my email address is djones1 at
1: arizona.edu. That's perfect. Well, I would like to thank you, Desiree, for taking time out to talk to us today. Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Coming up, we'll learn about Res Refuge with Monique Nakai. Support for 90.7 FM KRDP comes in part from Native Health with two locations in Phoenix, at 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C, and at 2423 West Dunlap Avenue. Native Health is also located in Mesa at 777 West Southern Avenue, near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads. Native Health provides primary medical, dental, behavioral health, WIC, and wellness services for the urban Native American community. For more information, call 602 279 5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.org
1: Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and KRDB 90.7 FM. I'm host Lanasha Puadi. Monique Nakai is the Musical Motivation Program Coordinator at Res Refuge, a nonprofit organization in Fort Defiance, Arizona. Welcome to our show, Monique. Hello. How's it going? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great.
3: Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Monique? I am a Navajo from Winter Rock, Arizona. I grew up here and I got a bachelor's in music education at UNM. And I started working here at Rez Refuge about two or three years ago.
1: And can you let us know what is Rez Refuge and how did it begin?
3: So we are a nonprofit located in Fort Defiance, Arizona within the Navajo reservation. And we are focused on youth development and community outreach. We were founded in 2007 with the intention that every youth should have a safe place to exist. Around here, not many households were considered safe and some lack sufficient mental and emotional support. So based on this, Mr. John Van Eyck, our founder, and many local and non-local volunteers renovated a dilapidated home that was donated by the STARS family. This home would become the community center scene today. Throughout the evolution of the organization and the direct collaborative efforts of local community leaders, employees, and beneficiaries, we have modified our programming to be inclusive to various ages, age groups with the intent to build community leadership.
1: And I understand that it also started from a after-school program?
3: Uh, yeah. So we started as a community center uh, within our uh, primary years, I guess. And then um, once the pandemic happened, that's when we had to change our, I guess, what we were working towards. So we provided a COVID-19 relief to community members around the area which included like distributing supplies. And um, we gave the youth uh, at home activity packs and we also helped with food distributions around the area from that were like provided by the local chapter houses. And since most of the
1: protocols are lifting from the COVID pandemic, do you guys plan on opening your doors soon for like in-person activities?
3: Um, so actually, it's kind of hard to decide on when the, on what we are going to do just because of we, we don't really know when the mandates will be lifted. And we're not really sure when we can begin regular programming. But um, with careful planning, we're hoping that the organization will be able to bring the youth back on site for youth development activities and that we can begin visiting the elders at the local senior centers. Uh, For now, most of our long-term planning is focused on outreach efforts and building a steady financial support system to continue operating.
1: And I also understand that you guys offer like a youth booth out at markets, like at the Window Rock Market?
3: Uh, Yes. So we have the flea market here at Window Rock. About two times a month, we go down to the flea market and we provide uh, activity packs and craft packs. Um... Sometimes we'll have games and just little prizes and stuff to give to the kids. And we'll even involve, like, older community members. And it's all for free. And do you have any favorite success stories
1: on maybe on specific individuals that you have worked with or maybe outreach events that you guys offer to the community?
3: So my favorite success story would be working with our other program coordinator, Ms. Dareth Hardy. She was committed, or she has committed herself to becoming a yoga instructor. She initially came on as a program support and initiated program activities and events supporting the benefits of yoga of oneself. And through challenging work and dedication to her community, she completed her final class in 2021 and will be providing instruction to our community in the upcoming program year.
1: And do you have any other upcoming events or programming
3: plans? Uh yes, we will be focusing on our Rock the Block benefit concert that will take place on Saturday, June 25th from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. behind our community center in Fort Defiance, Arizona. It was created as a benefit event for our creative expression program. Monique, what are the age groups that you
1: guys uh primarily cater to and how many kids do you currently reach? We
3: generally cater to youth between ages of uh, five to 18. So we will have programming for youth and teens. Um, so we do have uh, the youth led water project and the youth fellowship program, which are offered to our teens as internships. And those would be from age ranges from 13 to 18. And then we also provide uh, free virtual music lessons to youth within the area. And that one spans from five years all the way to 18 years old. Currently, we are we put a pause for our um, between our music programming. So usually we have a spring program and then a summer program. Uh, but within the spring program, we were able to provide services for at least 20 youth. Oh
1: wow, that is great! And I also understand that you guys were able to kind of like rent musical instruments to the students as well?
3: That is like one of my favorite things about working here at Res Refuge. So being the music uh, program coordinator, I was able to create my own program. So basically what we offer is guitar, ukulele, and piano. And with that is 30-minute free virtual music lessons and if they need an instrument then we can provide those to them for free like for renting for free and we also provide like the music supplies such as music stands and the music books that they'll be learning from.
1: And what kind of genre are the kids learning?
3: Um, Let's see so for piano um, it's well, for the most part, it's very, like, basic intro introduction type stuff. I do have one student that um, continuously comes back to our program, and he's interested in classical music. So uh, what I try to do for the participants is just, um, I guess, in a way, like, cater to what their interests are. So. If they really like pop music, then I'll be like, oh, okay, well, we can do, I can find you something related to that. Or if you really like classical, then we can find a way to get those types of books for you.
1: Oh, wow, that is awesome. This is a great resource and programs out there for the youth. Mm -hmm. Um, Monique, is there any additional information that you would like to share with us today?
3: Uh, Yeah, I just wanted to say that it's very important to know that grassroots efforts like ours can only be sustainable through community support, whether it's through small donations or promoting our organization with your friends and family. So we're very thankful that we were given this opportunity to, um, I guess, be on your podcast and to share information about Res Refuge. Uh, A lot of people actually don't know that we are here in Fort Defiance, so it's great being able to get out and um, promote our organization, especially because we are um, always looking for ways to build our community.
1: Monique, how can someone learn more about Res Refuge, and how can they contact you if they're interested
3: uh, so people can contact us by emailing info at resrefuge.org with any questions that they may have. Um, they can also visit our website at www.resrefuge.org. Uh, we also have a social media um, presence on Facebook, which would just be Res Refuge and Res Refuge Community Center. Uh, we also have an Instagram as well.
1: Well, I would like to thank you, Monique, for taking time out to talk to us today to share all the great programs and classes you guys are offering with Res Refuge.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Up next, we'll talk with Connor Chi and Sean Zephyr. Support for 90.7 FM KRDP comes in part from Native Health, with two locations in Phoenix at 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C and at 2423 West Dunlap Avenue. Native Health is also located in Mesa at 777 West Southern Avenue, near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads. COVID vaccinations, boosters, and testings are available at all locations for anyone over the age of 5. For more information, call 602-279-5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.org.
1: Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and KRDB 90.7 FM. I'm host Lanasha Pawadi. On the phone with me is Connor Chi, Navajo pianist and composer. Welcome to our show, Connor.
4: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
4: Uh, Well, I am a a pianist and composer. I actually uh, started out um, just playing piano, uh, playing piano performance. Uh, And eventually I started uh, turning to composition as well. Uh, I'm originally from Northern Arizona, um, the Navajo Nation. And uh, when I started composing, I started uh, bringing some of my classical piano training into the pieces that I was writing and sort of fusing the traditional Navajo songs and chants with uh, the piano and some of the classical piano things that I'd studied. And that's kind of uh, how I ended up here.
1: Oh, wow, that is great. And uh, you mentioned your classical training. Can you tell us more about your classical training and how you did combine um, that with your Navajo heritage?
4: So I started out uh, kind of playing by ear when I was about five, six years old and I was in Page, Arizona, and there were not uh, it was really difficult to find a piano teacher. Um, so eventually my my family was driving me to Flagstaff from Page every weekend for piano lessons. Um, And when I was about 10, when they saw I was really serious about music, um, they decided to try and get me into a music school. And that's when they actually moved to Cincinnati and I went to the School for Creative and Performing Arts in Cincinnati um, and started uh, studying music, piano. Uh, When I was 10 there, I eventually went to college. I went to Eastman School of Music and then the University of Cincinnati, CCM, to get my master's degree. So that was all just focused on playing piano. And, um, and performing, so I, I did all of the usual uh, standard repertoire, like the Mozart and Beethoven, Bach, Rachmaninoff. Um, and after I graduated, I wanted to come back to Arizona and try and preserve some of the traditional songs and chants that my grandfather would sing. And so it started out as sort of a preservation project, uh, and as I was going through trying to think of ways to preserve the music, other than just, you know, writing it down, uh, I decided to try and, you know, my background was in piano, start playing some of these or arranging some of these things uh, for the piano. And so it it went from this preservation project to taking some of the elements of the music that my grandfather would sing that was traditional and sort of finding the middle ground between where I could uh, express that in an appropriate way on the instrument and um, make it accessible to sort of a different audience Sort of a new way to share the music to um, those that might not be familiar with it or those who are and who uh, are like me indigenous um, peoples that are in the classical music uh, and instrumental music fields um, and so it sort of was a, a windy path that I took starting out just wanting to play piano and sort of finding my place here and uh, in this uh, world where I'm combining both the culture and, and the music with uh, what I do on the piano.
1: Oh, wow, that is amazing. And where did you get your inspiration?
4: You know, my my earliest inspirations were listening to um, my grandfather sing uh, when I was really young. And, you know, on both sides of my family, my grandparents were, were musical. And so I think that... You know, the whole time, whatever I was studying or whatever whatever I was listening to, I had these inspirations sort of uh, from my, you know, the foundation of who I was from my younger years. And so in some way, I guess it's inevitable that that would be influencing what I did, whether it was, you know, the traditional music or whether I'm playing classical music. So those are always something, things that I came back to, you know, from my formative years. And, um, you know, those inspirations took many different forms, whether it was just the dedication I put forth into the music and my practicing, or eventually into actually how I'm crafting the music that I'm composing.
1: And how long does it take you to write your music? Because I know it's probably difficult and time-consuming for you to do your classical aspect as well as combining it, as you said, with, the, with your Navajo heritage of the chants and everything that you took on from your grandfather.
4: You know, it's a different. It's um, I think my process when I'm composing is, it's for one thing, it's always changing a little bit, but in general, I think I spend a lot more time in my head, sort of thinking of what I will do and coming up with ideas uh, before I ever even play the piano or write anything down. A lot of times, I I spend a lot of times thinking about what the inspiration is, whether there's going to be uh, something like a cultural aspect, like a story or a specific thing I'm going to be writing about. Um, And how that might sound on the piano and I might spend, you know, a couple months just in my head like thinking over and over about this and Sometimes the writing process is pretty quick once I actually sit down to record or start writing the music Um, Sometimes I could you know do that in just a few days for a piece or a few pieces Um, But that's definitely from you know sort of thinking over things in my head for a long time There are some things where I'll sit down and start composing uh, melody or, or some themes or something and then kind of realize it's not quite what I want for this piece and tuck that away and come back to it, you know, months or maybe a year later for something else. Um, but in general, it just kind of, I have to sort of let this stuff, uh, like germinate in my brain for a while before I actually sit down to play it. But, um, you know, once I hit that, that flow state where I'm actually writing the music, it sort of, um, all comes out at once. It's usually like an intense, like, week or a few days that I, don't sleep much and just kind of, you know, get it all done while it's coming to me while it's fitting together and, uh, uh, you know, push some notes around a little bit here and there at the end. Um, But yeah, that's kind of my process in general for when I'm writing something new.
1: And do you primarily use like a acoustic piano or electric?
4: You know, I do a lot of my composing at night <laughs> when everybody's sleeping like overnight from like 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. that's my 9 to 5 so uh, you know when I'm practicing I have an acoustic instrument that I work on but a lot of times when I'm composing just not wanting to wake up anybody else in the house I'm on my keyboard and it's also easy to you know record ideas uh, on my computer with my keyboard and you know save these files here and there as I'm working um, you know, so that I have these ideas when I'm kind of either improvising or or playing through things. So I think a lot of the composing I do on my digital uh, studio equipment, and a lot of my practicing I do on my traditional acoustic piano.
1: Oh, wow, that is awesome. And I read you have released four studio albums of original pieces and piano transcriptions of Navajo music. Do you have a favorite song or album?
4: You know, I think um, one of my favorite ones to play, at least I think the ones that audiences seem to like, is from my first album. It's the Navajo Vocable Number no. Nine. Um, that's one of the first ones that I uh, that I did, based on a corn grinding song, and um, it's it's a shorter piece, and um, you know, it's something I think that I come back to, or I, I often include because uh, people seem to enjoy that. It's one of the corn grinding songs that I really like. So I do enjoy playing that one, I think, uh, from my first album.
1: Do you see your music in five years how has it evolved and where do you see it going
4: you know I really have no idea and I think I guess that's what's exciting for me <laughs> because even just in the past couple of years uh, when I first started writing music I was writing it just for myself to play uh, on my albums And as people have taken an interest, I've been doing other commissions for other instruments that I don't play. I recently did some music for the carillon, which I really didn't know anything about. So that was an interesting journey to to learn about these instruments and what they can do and the history behind them and and how to write for them. Uh, And I've been doing some film scores and things that are just way outside of anything I'd have imagined just even a few years ago. So I think hopefully in five years I'm doing something that I can't even think of right now. Uh, You know, that's how I would have it. It's it's much more exciting that way.
1: And what film scores did you do?
4: Um, One that was recently released was a short film called In Our Own Hands, which was uh, basically a short, uh, kind of an action film um, by uh, an indigenous uh, director, Jennifer Varencik. And it's about the uh, MMIW, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women um, crisis, to bring awareness to that. Um, I've also done some um, documentaries. Uh, I did one that was a documentary about um, Jean Lamar, uh, an Indigenous uh, visual artist, Um, and some other things, some things here and there. I'm working on another documentary that uh, is coming out later this year. So it's kind of varies.
1: Oh, wow. That is awesome. And what advice do you have for the youth wanting to get into the getting into music if they had those same barriers as you did when you were younger?
4: You know, I think for one thing is just as much as you can remove the self doubt because, um, I think specifically as an indigenous young person, um, there were a lot of times that people told me that things were just not possible or, or, you know, that I wouldn't be able to do it just because of who I was, that I wouldn't be able to be a professional pianist because I just, you know, didn't have the discipline that, you know, kids throughout the world have in other countries. And a lot of discouragement, a lot of, um, you know, times when I, that put some self-doubt in me, and uh, eventually, I kind of had to turn that self-doubt into this, like, fire that I just wanted to prove everybody wrong. And, you know, it can be so damaging to, to hear those things. But I think the worst thing is that sometimes we internalize that. And so to really work against that uh, idea that, you know, I think everybody has that self-doubt to just work hard and, uh, you know, practice your craft and always be learning. And always bettering yourself I think that you can really achieve anything I mean even today I'm constantly learning I'm constantly looking up you know master classes and tutorials in my free time to to learn more and I think that that's something to focus on rather than you know sometimes these negative things that come from outside and sometimes from within
1: oh yes definitely and do you have any upcoming concerts or upcoming events
4: Um, I have a few, I think the next uh, live performance that I'm going to be doing that's open to the public is next month in Fort Defiance at the Res Refuge, um, which is a youth center and it's going to be, you know, an opportunity for a lot of indigenous musicians to perform and raise funds for the Res Refuge. They do a lot of great work for the youth in that area in Fort Defiance Uh, and that's going to be on June 25th. So that's open up to, to anyone that wants to attend.
1: Oh, that's awesome, and we did just interview them as well, and that is for the Rock the Block Benefit Concert. Yes. Awesome. Connor, how can someone learn more about your music, and how can they contact you?
4: Uh, my website, which is www.connorchee.com, C-O-N-N-O-R-C-H-E-E. That has uh, links to all of my different uh, social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, uh, as well as all the streaming services where you can find my music. Um, there are copies of my sheet music on there, and there's a, a link for um, contacting me. And you can contact me on my other social media, too, uh, you know, Instagram and Facebook, send me a message there.
1: Well, I would like to thank you, Connor, for taking time out to talk to us today to tell us about your musical journey.
4: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate it.
1: Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and KRDB 90.7 FM. I'm host Lanasha Pawati. Sean Zephyr is the owner of Sweeter Mox, real Native American clothing located in Nevada. Welcome to our show, Sean.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Can you tell us about yourself and your journey?
5: Yeah, so I'm from the Shine River Sioux Tribe in Eagle Butte, South Dakota. And I grew up in Rapid City, South Dakota. Um, I currently reside in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's where I've been creating all of my um the moccasins, and B work. And just recently, um, in March, I just had a baby girl. So me and my wife have been really busy with that. So it's been a really good, uh, good year, good blessings
1: coming. Oh, wow. That is awesome. And congratulations. Thank you. Can you tell us more about your Sweeter Mox and how it began?
5: Sweeter Mox was just an idea more like back in 2017, 2018 where I wanted to keep our traditions alive through uh bee work and moccasins. It's a passion that, that I had, I always had it ever since I was small, um, going to the different powwows. Um, we would go with my grandparents and, um, I always wanted to create my own outfit. It's something that I, that, that I wanted to start. And, um, During the the pandemic, I was able to have a lot more time to create. So during this time, um, I started the uh, Sweeter Mocks. And from my first moccasin, I would just measure my wife's foot. And then I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I really didn't have any mentors or anybody to show me, but I just tried it out the first time. And from there, I just posted it like on. I actually made a, a TikTok video, and from there, a lot of people were asking me, uh, can you make mine? Or I like, I like the style that you have. Like, what is that? like? They're interested in the culture. And from there, I just started making more and more. And um, I started doing smaller moccasins, baby moccasins, taller moccasins, and just working with uh, different colorways. Because I went, when I was smaller child, I was a big sneaker head and um, during high school I would collect all these sneakers and I would watch videos of this guy named the Sh- the shoe surgeon and he would be- deconstruct sneakers and make them his own way and that's something that I wanted to do but during the pandemic I was like well let me just incorporate my passion for sneakers and my love for my uh, culture and just combine the two and from there I just started doing different colorways on all of different types of moccasins that I was making and then people just started to love them more, and they just start hitting me up, and just um, I was starting to take more orders and orders on that. So that's that's where the uh, sweeter mops became.
1: Oh wow! And can you tell us about the different types of moccasin you create?
5: Yeah. So the uh, main type that I that I focus on is the plain style. Um, I know there's a lot of different. Um, moccasin styles from tribe to tribe, but um, the way that the way that my grandfather taught me was to do the uh, plain style moccasins, the hard sole moccasins. Um, and while I was in while I was in Las Vegas, it was very hard for me to find the right people that had the right materials to make them, because um, there is not a lot of people that do like brain tanned buckskin anymore. So I would start um, using commercial leather, and this really gave me um, confidence that I could do it because it was very easy to beat on. And from there I started um, finding more people that had the correct materials to work on. And um, so the men's style moccasins I use, they have the the split tongues. Um, they have the tin cones on it with the horse or deer hair. I, I usually do those for the men's and then for uh, baby or toddlers, I like to use the, uh, baby wraps or the high tops um, to keep them warm. And a lot of people, a lot of babies and collars, they kick their moccasins off. So I like to make them a little higher. So they, they're um, kept snug on their, on their foot. Um, and for women's moccasins, um, I usually like to switch up the colorways on there and to use a uh, brain tan buckskin on them as well.
1: Oh, wow. And how do you come up with your design ideas? Because I know you had mentioned that um, everyone started to take an interest because of the style of how you were creating your moccasins.
5: Yeah, so, so I would do some research online, look at old photographs, um, order old books, and just uh, squirm through them, look at old photos, like how what designs uh, the plain style Indian used And from there, um, I just incorporated on um, smaller moccasins, like babies and toddlers. And then uh, it just grew to larger projects where I was beating my vest and then I could do a lot more designs on there. So it was just trial and error and um, looking at old photographs and trying to incorporate as much um, knowledge that I can. And um, recently I've been using a lot more um, different types of designs and in if somebody from the Morongo tribe wants to uh, incorporate a design, I could um, look at their page and see what they're interested in and see what uh, colors are trying to use. So I like to incorporate uh, my style and then have a little bit of their style incorporated in the moccasins as well.
1: Oh, wow. And how long does it take you to create one moccasin?
5: So... Uh, The baby moccasins and taller moccasins, I could do them about, um, two days. Um, and for the, uh, adult size moccasins, if like, like, a say a men's size 10, um, I could probably do it in four days. Um, before that, before I had our baby girl, I could do it possibly like in two or three days. So, um, yeah, very um very fast beater when it comes to like moccasins, they they always tell me.
1: Oh wow, that is crazy. That is especially long and like you mentioned, you did just have a baby, so I can't imagine how how much time you have to create a moccasin. Are you the only one that is making the moccasins for your company, Sweeter Mocks?
5: Yeah, so uh I've been creating the moccasins all by myself ever since um 2018, and then just recently, um, my wife has, I was trying to teach her to do uh, baby-style moccasins, um, so she usually helps me out when it comes to baby moccasins and taller moccasins, um, and then she'll deal with, like, all the packaging, and then all the, like, the shipping information and all that, and then she handles the uh, the emails, and then for my, um, for my online website, she'll handle, like, all the the t-shirt orders and all that as well.
1: Oh, wow, that is amazing. So it's really family-oriented. Do you plan on teaching your daughter when she gets older to bead moccasins as well?
5: Yeah, so that's definitely something that I want her to learn. I want to keep her as very much interested in in the culture because when I came out here, I I lost all the connection to my culture, and I don't want that to happen to her. So um, I, I want her... Keep, keep dancing in the powwow trail, and um, I'll teach her how to learn doing be the Moccasins as well.
1: That's awesome. And I know you had mentioned that your wife assists with uh, shipping and everything. Can you tell us more about the apparel?
5: I do have a logo design that was done by Isaiah Stewart. He's, from, he's an artist from Kansas. A lot of people that I interacted with in Vegas while I was in college they didn't know much about the Native American culture, so every time I would wear a like a Native design shirt, they would have they would always have like a question about it. So um, I would always explain to them like this design means this. This is from this tribe. and I'm from the Shine River Sioux Tribe. This is our um, flag. These are powwows, like powwow shirts that I would wear as well. And from there, I've just had an interest on creating my own shirt to show people. It was basically a shirt that had beaded moccasins on it and um, had all the natural elements had the buffalo had the traditional geometric designs of the moccasins on there um, had the eagle, the eagle tail on there so a lot of people when I was wearing it were very interested in it so um, from there I just created a, a, bulk, order, a bulk order and then um, people just start ordering it from like sweaters to t-shirts
1: Oh wow. which is
5: available on my website right now
1: that is awesome. And I know um, you guys are a, a two-person team. Are you guys planning on expanding some more of the sweeter mocks because you offer moxica- mox- moccasins and apparel? Do you plan on doing other apparel maybe? Um,
5: yeah, so uh, right now it's uh, strictly uh moccasins that we're doing. But um, I do want to start – to try to um, do leggings with the beaded moccasins um, for like the fancy, because there are a lot of fancy dancers and jingle dance dancers um, want their moccasins with leggings. So I do want to start doing more of the uh, beaded leggings and then also um, start making um, jingo dress outfits, fancy shawl outfits, so we could help keep our traditional life for the young uh, children out there.
1: Oh yeah, that would be amazing. Do you have a favorite pair of moccasins you've designed?
4: Uh, Just
5: recently, I did not have a a favorite pair, um, but ever since my baby girl was born, the first pair that I did for her um, would probably be my favorite because it's something that I was truly blessed to have as a baby girl.
1: So is that uh, the pair that you were just talking about, is that available online or is that something you just made for your daughter?
5: Oh, no, that's something that I just made for um, my daughter.
1: And Sean, how can someone learn more about Sweeter Mocks and how can they contact you if they had further questions?
5: If you want to learn more about like the process and how I come up with the designs, how I bead uh, the bead moccasins, um, I started a, a TikTok, um, and that shows videos, instructional videos on how to create this. So if you just go to Sweeter Mocs, Um, It'll be the uh, TikTok videos on there that that if you're interested on there, be instructional videos. And um, if you want to contact me, uh, you can go on my website, uh, seritamox.com, or email me um, or DM me on my Instagram. And then I should be able to follow up with you on what's the next process if you want something commissioned.
1: I would like to thank you, Sean, for taking time out to talk to us today to tell us more about your Sweeter Mox company and also about your journey getting there.
5: I appreciate you guys having me. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and 90.7 FM KRDP. Our executive producer is Susan Levy. Sound engineer is Javier Quiroga. And our host is Lanasha Puati. We hope you will tune in again next week. If you have any questions, please reach us at NativeTalkAZ at listen to krdp.com.